RV, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is T. Corey Brennan, Professor of Classics at Rutgers University in New Jersey. This is episode CLVIII, Plotina. When Trajan came to the big city, he brought his provincial wife with him. Plotina stood on the steps of Domitian's palace and promised the people of Rome that she'd keep it real. And from what we can tell from our ancient sources, that's exactly what she did. Here's Corey Brennan. Trajan was from um, the Spanish province of Baetica, and his wife uh, Pompeia Platina was her, her full name, and was very likely from a town called Nemausus, which is modern Neme in Narbonese Gaul. This was a very big deal because it was a dramatic enhancement of the status of provincial elites that none had ever reached the principate before. And so it was a turning point for Imperial Rome. Also, on looking at the tail end, Plotina and Trajan had no children of their own, but they were very good at uh, validating their own political rise and laying spectacular foundations for a new dynasty. And Plotina was very, very, very important for the rise of Hadrian himself. So when you say this is a change in how imperial elites come to power, this was the first outside of Italy? Precisely, to have a Spanish emperor. And it really is going to set the tone, of course, for the next few centuries of Roman history. But also, it's an interesting experiment just to see how two newcomers set about founding a dynasty. On the one hand, uh, Plotina will have found a sort of quasi-institutional structure in place. Um, Nerva did not have a wife, the emperor who adopted uh, Trajan, sort of at gunpoint. There was titles that were already in existence and prerogatives already in existence. However, though, there was a lot of latitude as far as self-preservation was concerned. Also, one had to invent oneself and invent one's public image, because if you take a look at what Rome's empresses had been doing, in the seven decades since uh, Livia, the wife of Augustus, had died, there wasn't very much positive uh, to emulate. In fact, actually shows it's a sort of a compendium of all the things that could go desperately wrong. So when Trajan came to the purple then, he essentially stepped into Rome on the footsteps of Domitian. Because I know, I know that Nerva was, was there for a short amount of time. But Domitian had such a big impact on Rome and was there for quite a sizable chunk of time that he'd redefined what it meant to be an emperor. So when Trajan came into Rome and Plotina with him, what sort of impression were they trying to make? Well, one thing that's very interesting is the adoption of um, Trajan by Nerva. And one of the ways to sort of uh, get an inkling that it wasn't the smoothest of or most natural of acts is the fact that there's no coin that commemorates it. Trajan, as a powerful military commander, was able to sort of force some nervous hand. However, there's a source problem with Trajan and with uh, Plotina, though there's um, lots of coins and there's... uh, a fair amount of material remains, most notably the uh, form of Trajan in Rome. The only significant extended literary narrative that we have is Pliny's uh, Panegyricus. There's no life of Suetonius. Suetonius conks out with Domitian, and the Historia Augusta, uh, for all its failings, only picks up with Hadrian. In other words, it's a little hard to get past the public self-presentation. So really what we end up 
talking, or at least what I end up talking about, is not what was Plotina really like, but rather the public image that was shaped for her and that she shaped herself. Yeah, sorry, that was probably an important thing to outline at the front of the podcast, so I'm glad that you did that. So we do have an epitome of Dio, though, don't we? Which is a little kind of bit, because I've got a quote here that Plotina said when she entered the palace, which I assume was the Palace of Domitian, which must have been quite a structure to see at the time. Mm. She turned around to face his stairway and the populace and said, I enter here such a woman as I would fain to be when I depart. And she conducted herself during the entire reign in such a manner as to incur no censure. That's essentially the only source that we've got from a historical document uh, besides, as you said, the Panagerius. The Dio is actually important because uh, it's a summary of Dio. And however, the summarizer then says, well, that was in fact true. She conducted herself during the entire reign in such a manner as to incur no censure. But it's clearly political theater. And this was an announcement that she was to make, that she was going to mark a break, so to speak, with the types of empresses that Rome had seen before. This was this whole type of moderation and self-restraint, I think, really what we hear Pliny in his panegyric, for instance, makes a very big deal about Plotina. Also, his sister Marciana, because very, very important, Trajan's sister in his reign, for each refusing the title of Augusta. And the Senate had offered them probably more than a few times, and they refused it because Trajan declined to be called father of the fatherland. In fact, actually, by the time the speech was delivered in the year 100, Trajan had accepted the title. However, though, they kept on refusing it for another five years, um, the latest by the year 105. Do you suspect that that is modesty or caution? Why do you think that they might be doing that? Basically, they have one eye toward the Emperor Augustus himself, who famously refused the title Pater Patriae really for 25 years, and then he accepted it and said it was the biggest deal of his life and ends his political biography, the res gestae with it. It was setting a tone. The thing that was also interesting about Plotina is to have paired Augusti, because you always had Marciana, the sister, at least for the first 14 years of Trajan's reign. Then Marciana dies in the year 112, and then something amazing happens. She's deified. However, Plotina was not left to be Augusta by herself immediately. Marciana's daughter, Metidia the Elder, is quickly made Augusta alongside Plotina. So you have these two Augusti, these two women, and they actually function as a pair. They even accompany Trajan to the east during his eastern campaign starting in 113. It's a very long-winded way of me saying that Plotina, even though she took the title of Augusta, she never was sole Augusta. Again, having the idea of to Augusti, was on the one hand building a foundation for a dynasty, on the other hand, it shows of modesty of uh, Plotina herself. Can we wade into the Panegyricus just a little bit? What was the purpose of that being written? Because that talks about Plotina and Trajan's sister as well, but it doesn't name them specifically. So it's not about them, it's about Trajan, and they get brought up tangentially, don't they? It's an interesting work. It's ostensibly written by the younger Pliny to uh, thank Trajan for his consulship, which was given to him in, it's a very easy year to remember, the year 100. There's a lot about Trajan's family that's in there. There's a lot that's not in there. For example, 
Trajan's father, who turns out to be a big deal later, he's in fact deified, it implies that the emperor's father is no longer alive, but does it make a big deal about him? There's a number of other aspects. The most memorable is what I stated, is that Pliny praising the emperor's wife, Plotina, and his sister Marciana for each strenuously refusing the title of Augusta. There's also... I don't know exactly how to explain it, but I find that the work a bit sickening. Any emperor who called himself Optimus the best, all this had a, a chilling effect on dissent. The fact we don't have a biography, that we have to rely on works like such as Pliny, it's made the sort of reign of Trajan a little less attractive to me. Although Plotina was clearly a very, very, very interesting figure with uh, strong intellectual interests of her own. One thing that I want to touch on now is that you said she doesn't accept Augusta until one. 105. She doesn't appear in any coinage until 112. What does that say to you? And, and what can we tell from the coins that we have of her? Because they give her an affiliation with Vesta, don't they? Mm. There's an explosion of Trajanic self-aggrandizement that occurs precisely in the year 112. The center point of it is the death of Marciana. She dies that year, and she was the first woman presented on a coin minted in Rome, and in fact, even on the obverse. Now, Caligula notoriously had put his three sisters on the reverse of one of his bronze issues. But the fact that Marciana got a coin, calling herself Augusta, in her lifetime, and her title is unparalleled, Sister of the Emperor Trajan. I mean, Soror is the Latin here, never appeared before on a Roman coin. And in fact, it never would again. And then as far as the reverse is concerned, you get Trajan's titles, which show that the coin is early January 112 or maybe a bit later. As far as her coinage is concerned, there's a lot of it. The death of Marciana in 112, the emperor's sister, is a watershed moment for the women of the family. And I said it starts with the startling Trajan's sister issue. And then there's a lot of other stuff. Marciana, the very same day that she dies, is consecrated. She is deified. And the very same day, also, her daughter, Trajan's niece, Metidia, is named Augusta. Basically, we know the date of this, the 29th of August. Also, mm. enormous public funeral for Marciana. Okay, so just keep all this in mind when we're talking about Plotina. Then, honors throughout the empire to the two women, especially in the East. Then, promotion of the new Augusta, Metidia. Then, there is also a new series of coins which basically creates this ridiculous aggrandizement of Trajan's father, Trajan Sr., who is also made a god. So in other words, Trajan is deifying people left and right in his own family in order to build a dynasty. Mm. When it comes to Plotina, the Greek East is just in general is usually the first place where you see sort of honors that take more than a few years, if ever, to trickle down in Rome. So already by 107, 108, they're the first times that you see the Greek provincial coinage that's calling Plotina Augusta. But it's not until 112, this enormous, enormous year, that Plotina finds a place in Rome's coinage. That's really interesting because you get Plotina on the obverse of the coins and is usually identified as wife of the emperor Trajan. There's a lot of different reverses, lots of scenes that have not been seen before, lots of legends, some really sort of wild 
combinations, Trajan on the obverse, then uh, the deified Nerva and Plotina on the reverse, et cetera, et cetera. But really, with all these, with Vesta or whoever it is, the cumulative message is family legitimacy, solidarity, continuity, integrity mm. of the marriage, and Concordia, the partnership between husband and wife, and all in the context of pushing Trajan himself. There's never a sense of rivalry between the women in Trajan's family, is there? I would have thought that if there was something horrible or notable that Dio would have mentioned it in his epitome, that it would have been picked up there. But it seems to be a kind of smooth sailing family. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, if anything, if there was any rivalry beneath the surface, we don't hear anything of it. And it seems that, I mean, Plotina, Matidia and Trajan all operated as a unit, and they're traveling mm. together in the east during Trajan's Parthian campaign of 113 to 117. So you're absolutely right. And if there was any fissures, so to speak, we're going to see at any place has to do with the death of Trajan and the adoption of Hadrian right around the same time, a bit suspiciously. If anything, Hadrian, he was very fond of Plotina, and he was even more fond of Matidia. So that triad sort of continues into um, the next imperial reign. So if you could just introduce Hadrian a bit so that we can get a sense of who he is and how we are told that Plotina figures into him becoming the emperor, because there's a suggestion that she had more than a little to do with that, and also with uh, Hadrian marrying Sabina. Uh, yeah, this is the one thing where which our sources are pretty um, unanimous on, that Hadrian owed everything to Plotina. First of all, the link between Trajan and Hadrian, they're both from Baetica. They're both from the same town in Baetica, Italica. And the link actually is Sabina, because Sabina was a grandniece of Trajan. She was a daughter of Matidia the Elder. Not long after Trajan comes to power, which is the year 98, Sabina marries Hadrian. Again, the source is a pretty dicey one, but there's a late second, early third century CE biographer who we don't really have except in quotation, Marius Maximus, or paraphrase, mm. who says that Trajan was against the marriage, but Plotina prevailed. And so Sabina and Hadrian married. So Plotina, if this is true, that she was backing the marriage, was surely looking ahead at the next generation. I've seen with the previous empresses that they only seem to be as influential as an emperor will let them be. So the fact that you can make a statement that Plotina prevailed in uh, the marriage between Hadrian and Sabina gives me the impression that Trajan trusted her judgment and listened to her on these kind of things. This is a good point. She was obviously very, very influential. As I said, the personality of Plotina only really sort of comes alive for us to a certain degree after the death of Trajan, where we see, for example, she stage manages the um, succession uh, for Hadrian. It was even thought that she had forged the adoption which uh, took place just two days before Trajan's death. The other thing is we find that Plotina had intellectual interests. This is something we never would have suspected from um, the account of Trajan's reign itself. In the year 121, there's this dossier of epigraphic documents, inscriptions, that shows that the philosophers of the Epicurean school at Athens are appealing directly to Plotina. It was a technical matter. There had been a rule that to head the Epicurean school, you had to be a Roman citizen, and they wanted an exemption from this. And so Plotina writes this letter of advocacy to Trajan, calls him Dominus, Lord, which is very, very interesting. 
but then also says something interesting. He says, you know very well my feelings toward this philosophical school. And in mm. fact, actually, Hadrian complies. He doesn't mention her intervention. He doesn't say in the letter to Athens that Plotina had intervened, but he basically follows her request exactly. To celebrate this decision, Plotina, who had written in Latin to Hadrian, then writes in Greek this very, very exuberant letter to all her friends amongst the Epicureans. And she says, We've, we have what we hope to achieve, but also uses Epicurean language and uh, technical vocabulary and even the style. For example, diminutives are characteristic of the Epicurean school, and Plotina does precisely this. But then, of course, reminds the Epicureans that it's Hadrian they should really be thankful to, who is truly a benefactor and regulator of all culture. He is also an exceptional master and a good son to me. They took the adoption very, very seriously. I mean, it's very, very clear that they had a special bond. I mean, certainly intellectually, I'd say politically, of course, and spiritually as well. Unfortunately, Plotina dies not too far into uh, Hadrian's principate, is duly consecrated, though there's no coin to uh, celebrate it, which is actually a bit odd. It's a narrow, narrow, narrow window to look through, but we can get a glimpse that, of Plotina as a real living person. That language kind of carefully flatters Hadrian as well, which I suppose is something that she might need to do as, as a dowager kind of position that she's in, uh, where she's not the only Augusta. Hadrian did put her on coins, didn't he? Because I've got here an inscription of a Plotina Augusta of the Divine Trajan, mm. which is an interesting title that he's given her. Yeah, Plotina basically features on Hadrianic coins. There's actually a whole flurry of issues. In fact, actually, his earliest policy focus was aggrandizing Plotina and also his mother-in-law, Matidia the Elder. And so the first thing he does, he issues this flurry of coins to show his links to his predecessor's family. So, for example, there's about two dozen different coins that commemorate Plotina when she was alive. And Matidia gets coins both alive and dead. And even toward the end of Hadrian's reign, after 17 years on the throne, he dedicated a really spectacular gold issue to his divine parents, to Trajan and Plotina. So this was crucial to Hadrian's self-representation, that very, very, very strong continuity with the reign of Trajan. And he made an enormous show of devotion to Plotina. Okay, so she dies in 121 or 122. We're a bit vague on the year of the death, but that puts her at Augusta for nearly 20 years, and I guess Empress for a bit longer than that. We're talking about, I guess, 22 years or so. Yeah, she was in the public eye for quite some time. And again, you're absolutely right. We don't know the exact date of her death, maybe even as late as early 123. But at any rate, Hadrian was on the road. I mean, Hadrian is famous for his travels. And he was either in Gaul or he was in Spain. This was during the first leg of this great imperial journey that he had that lasted to the year 125. And again, Dio Cassius, who's very interested in Plotina, makes a big deal. He says that Hadrian was so upset at this, he was in mourning, that he wore black for nine days. I looked up to see what was the normal amount of time that one would wear black clothes in mourning in Rome, and it was, in fact, nine days. So, in fact, it was, <laughs> so that was perhaps expected. But it was maybe unusual if an emperor is on campaign with his military that he's wearing black in mourning. Maybe, that, maybe that's the meaning of it. Okay. Here's the bit. 
he built a temple to her, this is what all Diocassius, and also composed some hymns in her memory. We're told also by another source, Historia Augusta, that Hadrian put up an enormous basilica at her birthplace, which is in Nîmes, and also gave her a funeral oration, maybe not until he got back to Rome in 125. And there's only one line that has remained of this funeral oration that we have. Though she asked much of me, she was never refused anything. And then Dio says, here's the explication of that. The types of things she asked me of were not a burden to me. And on the other hand, were not so serious that they allowed any reason for me to turn her down. And where we can check the one instance, the Epicureans in Athens, this is absolutely, absolutely confirmed. Mm. Oddly, we don't know much about her deification other than the fact it happened. We don't have the date. We don't have a coin issue for it. And in fact, the first hint of it comes from that late coin issue that I mentioned, the coin issue to his divine parents, Trajan and Plotina. And I guess um, buried in Trajan's column? Precisely. Making her the only empress to be buried within the walls of Rome, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. Good point. Good point. Yes, I hadn't thought of it that way. (laughs) Yeah, okay. That's probably all that we can say about her, other than she fulfilled what she said to the people of Rome she was going to do when she went in there, uh, left without creating commotion. Yeah, and amazingly, the last thing I'll say is that considering the nature, the tenor of our ancient sources, it's a bit remarkable that other than the the bit about engineering Hadrian's succession, and which is not necessarily condemnation, but basically showing how crafty she was in doing so, she does essentially escape deep criticism in our ancient sources. That was T. Corey Brennan, professor of classics at Rutgers University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your local friendly neighborhood podcatching service. Please leave a review. They are very appreciated. And you can follow both myself and Corey on Twitter. Corey is at DJ Coronelius. I am at Nightlight Guy. And the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome. In the next episode, we'll continue our look at the Empresses by discussing Hadrian's wife, Sabina. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.